As we come to the end of February, we come to the end of the first section of the book of Numbers, closing in on it. The Hebrew title of this book is not the book of Numbers, but it's Bemidbar, in the wilderness. The Lord who speaks to his people, the Lord who is with his people in the wilderness. And these opening chapters recount the Lord constituting this first army of the people of God in the wilderness. And soon we will get to accounts uh, of the actual march across the desert filled with really interesting narratives. Uh, in fact, this past Friday uh, at the parents' night, many of our covenant children were here and got a sneak preview of some of these narratives and are ready to hear more about the manna and quail and about the 12 men who went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad, two were good. Learned the song. Uh, and all the complaining not to mention the bronze snake, a talking donkey. But before we can get to all of that, we get one more chapter about the tabernacle and the Levite priests. And before we get to that, it's good for us to pray. So let's pray. Lord, we do come to you now in prayer, recognizing that in order for us to hear your word as your word, we are utterly dependent upon you. We need your Holy Spirit to come right now, to fill us, to bear witness to the preaching of your word, the reading of your word, that we would receive it as your word. You speaking and revealing yourself in your will and ways to us. So it is we also pray as always for the preacher and know that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Before we get to chapter 8, I want to do a quick summary uh, review of chapters 1 through 7 and trying to create some mnemonic for the book of Numbers to use numbers to remember what happens in each of the chapters. have notes there in the back of the bulletin for you. This uh, Chapter 1 is the first census. There will be another one later on uh, because we remember that this book is actually written for the second generation. But we read in chapter 1 the first census of those people when they out of Egypt and are now into the wilderness of those who will be able to serve in the army if and when the country goes to war. And then the second chapter is where we read about the people camped and looking to the Lord. They're all camped around the tabernacle and facing in that they might see the Lord. Uh, and there's three tribes on each of the four sides of the tabernacle. And then chapter three, we get the 13th tribe of Levi that is the priestly tribe that foreshadows the priestly work of Jesus. We're going to see a lot more of that in chapter 8. And then chapter 4 shows us the duties of the four groups of Levite priests. There's Aaron and his sons, and then the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merorites, who all have particular duties, and they camp uh, inside that grouping of the outward camping of uh, of the Israelites. So the Israelites, and then you got the Levites who are mediating in between uh, and uh, right there in front of the tabernacle in the presence of God. So then chapter 5 gives us uh, a glimpse of how purity is restored for five types of sin. And we remembered that sin is not just our actions of sin, but sin is that which separates us from God. We are actually dead in our sins, not just needing a little tweak here and there, but we are born dead in our sins 
and need to be brought to life ultimately by the sacrifice of Christ. And so the cleansing and the purity, uh, the sacrifices, all are these purity laws that describe our spiritual condition and to see that we need Christ who is the one taken outside the camp that ultimately we find uh, new life in Christ. And that took us to chapter 6 in which we saw the Nazarites uh, and talked about the uh, 66 days for a new habit. That a Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow, but certainly one that was uh, something they were committed to long enough that their hair grew long, that people could note that they had taken a vow, uh, and that they were looking to have a change in their life, that to, to have Christ uh, doing a work, to have the Lord doing a work of sanctification. And out of that is that uh, benediction from the Lord, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, which is how it's even possible for any transformation to take place in our life. And then that took us to chapter 7, uh, and the gifts that were brought, and reminds us of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, that says, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That the people of God brought these gifts to the anointed altar, the altar, the place of sacrifice that foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And it was an anointed altar. The Hebrew word for anoint is Messiah. So it's the Messiah altar. And so it certainly points to the cross of Christ and that we see that we bring gifts uh, to God in response to the gift that God first offered to us, his own son who ministers to us from the mercy seat. And so that takes us to chapter 8. I'm going to do this in two parts. Listen first to God's word in the first four verses of chapter 8. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the seven lamps, they are to light the area in front of the lampstand. Aaron did so. He set up the lamps so that they faced forward on the lampstand just as the Lord commanded Moses. This is how the lampstand was made. It was made of hammered gold from its base to its blossoms. The lampstand was made exactly like the pattern the Lord had shown Moses. I remember from uh, last week, we talked about uh, sacred space. Um, and the Lord created the sacred space of the tabernacle area and really the entire encampment of the Lord that has four parts to it. In the tabernacle area, there is the Holy of Holies, which is where the ark was, the mercy seat, the atonement cover, and the glory cloud that sat above the atonement cover, and the Lord's presence there. And only Moses would go in to receive revelation from the Lord, and then uh, the high priest would only go in one day a year into the Holy of Holies. Then outside of that is that outer sanctuary, the most holy place. And then outside of that is the courtyard, which is where the people could gather, and that's where sacrifices were offered, was in the courtyard area. And then there's the camp. And then there was the area outside the camp. Well, the lampstand is inside, not the Holy of Holies, but the holy place, that outer sanctuary. Inside that room is the golden table on which sat the bread of presence, which was actually 10 uh, loaves of bread called the show bread or the bread of presence that represented uh, the offerings, the 12 offerings of the 12 tribes. And there was also there the altar of incense, different than the sacrificial altar in the courtyard where sacrifices were offered. This was the altar of incense that was continually burning as the continual prayers of the people were lifted up to God. And then also in that room was this golden lampstand. 
And the full detail of how it is the lampstand was to be built is given back in Exodus in the construction blueprints for the tabernacle. Here, as we look at this, we need to remember again that when we talk lampstand, is that we're now talking about the lampstand that we have in our living rooms, right? Something that you can plug in and flip a light switch and out it comes. No electricity. So we're talking about a lampstand that would contain oil and flames. And so oil was continually having to be uh, supplied, and that was the duty of the priest to make sure there was oil and that the lamps were always lit. And you can picture more of a menorah uh, as far as the seven blossoms, the seven uh, lights that would shine out. Now, certainly, this lampstand and the lamp serves a functional purpose. You need light in that room, it's the only light in that room. There's no windows. It's a dark room, and this is the only thing that provides light. But our passage has God insisting that the lamps should face forward and shed light forward. The lampstand symbolizes God himself. Notice, first of all, what it's made of. It's made out of pure gold, hammered into its shape. Now, other objects, like the table, are made out of wood and then are gold-plated. Many of the objects were plated with gold, but this is solid gold. Can you imagine the value of that thing? Seven lamps then also symbolize the completeness and perfection of God's presence. In fact, it was to give light, which is the same Hebrew word in that priestly blessing of God's face shining upon his people. And so the light of the lampstand is the light of God's favor shining on his people. We see that especially when we think about what it's shining upon. It's shining on the table on which sat the 12 bread, uh, loaves of bread that represent the offerings of God's people from the 12 tribes. The light of the Lord's blessing continually shining on the tribes of his people, making their offerings acceptable in his sight. And so we see Jesus in all of this. Not hard to do so as we think about the light, right? The Gospel of John, chapter 1, says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And speaking of Jesus, there was a man sent from God, first whose name was John, John the Baptist, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And that is Jesus, the light of Jesus, who shines not just on the 12 tribes of Israel, but is the light of the world. That was anticipated in the Old Testament. The Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of, Israel, of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so Jesus is a light for all nations. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, as we know with light, not all embrace the light. Most of the time we are glad for the light, when it's dark, we're trying to find something. We flip the light on. We're looking around and we're glad to have light. Cockroaches, not so much, right? If you're in a place and there's cockroaches, you flip on the light, what do they do? They scatter away. And they go to hide again 
back into the darkness. There are those and there are parts of this world that prefer the darkness. In our natural state, we love the darkness because the light exposes. The light reveals our hearts and lives. But for those who have come to love the light because of God's grace, we are glad for the illumination. We are glad for the new life that is found in Christ. We are glad for places of darkness that are revealed, that gospel light might shine in there and transform us, that we would walk in God's ways. Sins that are kept hidden do us no favors. In fact, a couple weeks ago with the youth group, we were talking about this and remember John Owen's words, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So Jesus said, I am the light of the world, but in Matthew 5, as we read earlier in the service, Jesus also said, you are the light of the world. So which one is it? Yes. But the you that's there in Matthew 5 is not singular. An individual believer cannot be the light of the world any more than an individual can be a city on a hill. The church is the light of the world, shining out God's glory together. The you is plural. We together, the church of Jesus Christ, are to be a living lampstand shining out God's light to the world by ministering the gospel in word and deed. And as we do that, we know that some will reject the gospel light. Some will be offended by the offer of Jesus. Some will not want to hear about the gospel and tell us to stop talking about it and stop ministering that way. But we do it because it's the light. And it's what we're called to do. And there are many that will embrace it. And all of that is important in understanding the next section, the lengthy section of chapter 8. And a section that upon first glance sounds really pretty boring and strange. It doesn't seem like it applies much at all. I was thinking about that uh, last night. This is championship season. I got to watch a couple of championship basketball games last night uh, for our family about to come into the championship season for swimming as well. The Olympics have been on. Lots of excitement right now. Good emotional drawing, all kinds of physical energy, getting ready for the game, going to the game, talking about it afterwards. Plenty of excitement there. And then we get Numbers chapter 8 and go, let's just watch some more sports because that's way more exciting, right? Let's try it here. Listen as God speaks again, beginning at verse five. The Lord said to Moses, take the Levites from among the other Israelites and make them ceremonially clean. To purify them, do this. Sprinkle the water of cleansing on them, then have them shave their whole bodies and wash their clothes and so purify themselves. Have them take a young bull with its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, Then you are to take a second young bull for a sin offering. Bring the Levites to the front of the tent of meeting and assemble the whole Israelite community. You are to bring the Levites before the Lord and the Israelites are to lay their hands on them. Aaron is to present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the Israelites so that they may be ready to do the work of the Lord. After the Levites lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, Use the one for a sin offering to the Lord and the other for a burnt offering to make atonement for the Levites. 
have the Levites stand in front of Aaron and his sons and then present them as a wave offering to the Lord. In this way, you are to set the Levites apart from the other Israelites, and the Levites will be mine. After you have purified the Levites and presented them as a wave offering, they are to come to do their work at the tent of meeting. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to me. I've taken them as my own in place of the firstborn, the first male offspring from every Israelite woman. Every firstborn male in Israel, whether man or animal, is mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set them apart for myself. And I've taken the Levites in place of all the firstborn sons in Israel. Of all the Israelites, I've given the Levites as gifts to Aaron and his sons to do the work at the tent of meeting on behalf of the Israelites and to make atonement for them, so that no plague will strike the Israelites when they go near the sanctuary. Moses, Aaron, and the whole Israelite community did with the Levites just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Levites purified themselves, washed their clothes. Then Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord and made atonement for them to purify them. After that, the Levites came to do their work at the tent of meeting under the supervision of Aaron and his sons. They did with the Levites just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses, this applies to the Levites. Men 25 years or more shall come to take part in the work at the tent of meeting. But at the age of 50, they must retire from their regular service and work no longer. They may assist their brothers in performing their duties at the tent of meeting, but they themselves must not do the work. This then is how you are to assign the responsibilities of the Levites. The Levites were called to be the Lord's servants as substitutes for God's people. They redeem the firstborn of Israel, the firstborn who were to serve the Lord specially and completely. The tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe, not because they were holier than anybody else, but simply because the Lord had chosen them and set them apart for this work. It's what it is to be holy. It doesn't mean you're better than others. It simply means set apart for a particular work of the Lord. The purification service really does seem strange, but shows that those who serve the Lord must be purified. And there's two ways in which this purification takes place, cleansing and sacrifice. The cleansing involved being sprinkled with water and then shaving all the hair off the body and washing their clothes. Now, back in chapter 5, when we talked about spiritual cleansing, we saw, again, sin is that which separates us from God and that the sinful condition is a condition of death. And so the ritual of cleansing was really a ritual of cleansing and being aware of, of that state of death, that condition, and an outward display of that inward reality that we need to be brought to life, that we need to be set free from sin's defilement, which is really sin's power as well as sin's presence in order to become spiritually clean. And the way in which that ultimately happens is through the sacrifice of Christ. And that's why it's not only the cleansing, but the cleansing connected to the sacrifice. Because it's in the sacrifice of Christ that the power of sin is broken. He is victorious over death for us. And so here in this Old Testament ritual, we see this foreshadowed. The Levites place their hands on the heads of the bulls that are to be sacrificed as a sin offering. And the act of laying on of hands identified the animal 
as belonging to the worshiper and therefore is taking his place. And the death that would happen to this animal is the death that is deserved of the worshiper, but this animal will take my place and points ultimately to Christ who has taken our place for the punishment that we deserve. Because only the pure can stand in the presence of God. And that is why the Levite priests first and foremost foreshadow the priesthood of Christ. Jesus is our perfect and final priest. There's the three offices that Christ fulfills of prophet, priest, and king, and why it was that the three gifts that were brought of myrrh for the prophet, incense for the priest, and gold for the king. Again, the, uh, the incense that would rise up as the prayers. And there's lots of New Testament passages that especially speak of Christ as our final priest, and that Christ not only offers the final sacrifice, but he is the final sacrifice. It's a communion hymn that we often sing, and in there is a line, Christ the victim, Christ the priest. Jesus offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. He is the perfect, pure, spotless lamb of God who was slain. And so his perfect sacrifice and only his perfect sacrifice can atone for all the elect from every age and from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Old Testament believers looked forward to the day in which that Messiah would come and be incarnate. We now live on the other side in which that's already taken place. But participating in the Old Testament and sacrifices is the same as what it is we do now of participating in the remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. And we realize that Jesus continually intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. As the altar of incense always had the incense smoke rising up So it is, the prayers of the people continually rise up, and as we offer those prayers in Jesus' name, we know that it is Jesus who intercedes for us and speaks our name and our needs into the ear of our Heavenly Father. And so the work of the Levite priests speak to the priesthood of Christ. But also through Christ, we see that it foreshadows the priesthood of all believers. Since we are united to Christ by faith, we share in his ministry. We are called to be pure servants of the Lord. As we enter into the sanctuary, as we enter into the presence of God, we renew the covenant of grace and proclaim Christ as our covenant head. It's what's signified and sealed in the two sacraments. Baptism, that like circumcision of old, identified believers with the sign and seal, the covenant of grace, signifying and sealing that you are a part of the family of God, that you are part of the people of God. And then in the Lord's Supper, we receive and take to ourselves by faith this sign and seal and to acknowledge that it is Christ's sacrifice that atones for our sins and we receive Christ and his benefits to the nourishment of our very souls. Is it any wonder that so many churches celebrate the Lord's Supper every week? I really want to see the sense of the priesthood of all believers in the very last part of chapter eight in a really intriguing uh, notion that the Lord had said to Moses that this was, was to apply to the Levites who were to serve from the age of 25 until they were to retire at 50. Anybody wanna retire at 50? One of the things that's interesting about this is here it says that the starting age is at 25. 
Now, back in chapter 4, when we read about the census there and the dividing of the workload, it said there that the work was to begin at the age of 30. And so what's the, what's the discrepancy? It says 25 here and 30 back there. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, sought to correct it by simply making them both say 25. But one says 25 and one says 30. And what it is that the Jewish commentators have said uh, throughout the ages and what seemed to have been the practice was one of actually apprenticeship, a mentorship in which the first five years, from age 25 to 30, it was that that group of men were learning the, t- the trade and being able to learn in that five-year period of time what the work was. And then to carry out the full workload between the ages of 30 and 50. And that full workload was the heavy lifting, literally the heavy lifting. Right? It was in the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the, the mobile mash unit uh, in the wilderness when everything had to be taken down and then carried physically to the next place and then set back up. And so the heavy lifting was to be done by those between the ages of 30 and 50. And then once a Levite retired at 50, it didn't mean that he just retired and went to Florida, put his feet up and just went on cruises and did nothing else but relax all the time, all right? Play some shuffleboard. Talked about that the other day it was to say that they passed the work down to the next generation. They could still assist. They may assist their brothers in performing their duties at the tent of meeting. So as the tent of meeting was up and all the duties that needed to take place, standing guard, making sure the oil was in the lampstand, making sure that the bread was in its position, offering the sacrifices, all the work that was part of the daily work of the tabernacle, The Levites could do all of that at whatever age, but a particular age to do the heavy lifting. And so it seems that right in here, we have a sense in which what God was creating was a sense in which even the Levites, as the people of God were supposed to do, were always looking to the next generation. The days in which you would do a particular duty were limited. You were training up the next group to take over that duty and an apprenticeship to do that. And then as you neared retirement, you needed to make sure that there were people ready to take on the duties that you had done. Not just that you retire and hope somebody else does it, but you've been training and preparing a people to do that. In the natural flow of things, when everybody was a farmer, in the days in which we had an agricultural society, that happened more naturally. Fathers taught their sons and mothers taught their daughters. The older taught the younger, and they were always learning and growing in the duties that were to be done. And within the Industrial Revolution, some of that began to change, although families would sometimes take on trades, and again, you would teach the trade to your children. But more and more as we become a fragmented society, we have people that just kind of do their thing without necessarily intentionally feeding and building into the next generations. In fact, we separate people out. Kindergartners here, first grade here, second grade, third grade here. Junior high, don't talk to the elementary. High school, don't talk to who, seniors, don't talk to freshmen, right? And everybody in their own separate workplaces. And that sense of community building into each other has certainly been lost. And we've come to a place in which, particularly this culture and this generation, we have a group of people that says, you know what, it's just easier to do it yourself. I could probably show somebody else how to do this, but it's just going to take longer. It's going to give me headaches. They're not going to get it the first time. It's just easier to do it myself. And then we have another generation that's younger that says, it's easier just to have you do it for me. And so we have two things that are happening at the same time. Easier to do it myself, easier just to have you do it for me. 
And really what we both want is to do it together and to realize that's better, but that's not how it is we do it naturally. And so it really becomes a supernatural reality and one that the Lord has hardwired in that we are to intentionally do things together. And we see that even in the person and work of God himself. We remember that God is self-sufficient. He really doesn't need us. God could have said, you know what, it's easier just to do it myself. I'll just do, do it for you and don't need you for anything. But we saw again, Jesus says, I am the light of the world and you are the light of the world. God has taken the initiation of invitation for us. We do good works in response. But God has taken that initiation and either the older generation or younger generation could do that. Someone who says, it's easier just for you to do it for me could say, but I would love to have you show me how. An older generation would say, it's easier just for me to do it myself, but could say, but let me show you how to do it. God has taken that initiation of invitation. And there is the one side of us that in laziness could just look and say, God has to do it all anyway. The other extreme is the works righteousness that says, it's not gonna get done unless I do it and I need to do the work. But again, the older and younger together can take the initiation of invitation, just as God has taken the initiation of invitation and we live in response to that. Yes, it's easier to do it yourself. Yes, it's easier to have it done for you, but better and right for us to do it in community. God is glorified and Christ's kingdom is built by his grace echoed in our works and by the community coming together, the you plural, to be the city on the hill and the light of Christ that shines on all together. May that truth set us free. Amen.